And so, loved ones, let us read responsibly here. Lord's Day 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism, beginning with question 54 to question 56. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to this end, gathers, protects, and preserves for itself a community chosen for eternal life, and united in true faith, and of this community I am and always will be a living member. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers one and all, as members of Christ the Lord, have a communion with him, and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by His grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never come into judgment. And now the reading of God's Word from Acts 2, starting in verse 36. This is on the day of Pentecost, and this first verse here is the conclusion of Peter's sermon, where he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Word of the Lord, thanks be to God, may we add his blessing to it tonight as we consider it together. I'm excited to go through this passage. Please leave that, uh, that passage in Acts open before us as we study it together tonight. Find my notes here. Oh, as I mentioned, this passage begins here with the conclusion to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, that first Christian sermon. And and when we study that, that sermon of Peter, he persuasively argues there from the Old Testament scriptures that 
because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that God the Father had made him both Lord and Messiah, that is, King and Savior. And his sermon, as you study it, it's logic on fire, which is how Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones described preaching should be. There's logic, and it's on fire, it's passion there, and he's persuasive. And so we hear how the people responded, the Jewish men that were gathered, men and women that were gathered there that day for the festival, they were cut to the heart, convicted of their own sin. And they realized that they were totally wrong about Jesus, the one whom they had previously probably yelled out, crucified him, and were in that way complicit in the guilt of his death. His blood was upon them. And so they were guilty. And they felt it deep in their heart. They were cut to the heart. It refers to that godly sadness that they felt with the evil that they had done against God. They weren't just caught red-handed for what they had done and filled with a sense of shame, but no, they had remorse, contrition, sorrow for having killed the Messiah, the greatest offense of all against God. And so, they desired to get right with God, and we find them asking, what shall we do? How can sinners be made right with God? Peter gives us this clear, simple answer here. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So in other words, turn away from your activity that is opposed to God's word and his holiness and align yourself with Jesus and his people by way of water baptism. Now water baptism, it points to, on one hand, our personal union with Jesus. It personally comes over us, either as a child in our infancy or later in life uh, if we come to the Lord uh, outside of the church and are brought in. But it's a personal thing by which it symbolizes that we have been washed clean of all of our own personal sins that we struggle with for the rest of our lives. Forgiveness, we find, is only found in and through the powerful blood of Jesus that he voluntarily poured out on the cross for sinners like us to atone for all our sins. And that's part of what we read in the Heidelberg Catechism, right? About what do we believe in the Apostles' Creed, the forgiveness of sins? Well, because Jesus shed his blood in our place on the cross, it's a sacrifice for our sins. As we confess, God will no longer remember our sins, even though we struggle with our sinful nature for the rest of our lives. He no longer remembers our sins. His blood has washed our guilty stains that were as scarlet, and he has made them as white as snow. He has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. He forgives all our sins. And that's what Peter was declaring there on the day of Pentecost, that good news. If you repent and believe, even your worst sins have already been fully forgiven. You have the forgiveness of sins in his name in your baptism points to that reality as a visible reminder of that promise of God. But notice that baptism here in this context is not just a personal thing, it is a communal thing. Water baptism points to our personal union with Jesus, yes, but also points to our corporate union with Jesus as a body of the church. And so baptism is the sign of that new 
covenant in Jesus' name. And Luke tells us here that those who accepted his message, Peter's message, were baptized. And then he immediately says, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And so their baptism was a sign of their initiation into the new covenant people of God, the church. They were added to the number of the apostles and the disciples, which in the beginning of the day of Pentecost started off with the 12 plus 120 that were gathered there in the upper room to receive the Holy Spirit. And so these 3,000 are now officially included into the new messianic movement there in Jerusalem, the assembly of Jesus' followers. Based on what Peter says, who determines? Who determines which sinners are saved? Well, he says that the promise is given and ultimately extended to all those whom the Lord our God will call. It is the Lord who determines it. Now, how does the Lord call sinners to himself by his sovereign grace? Well, by his Holy Spirit working through the preaching of the word, God draws sinners to himself. As Jesus himself said on, there in John 6, uh, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So it's, it's an impossibility. You do not have the, uh, a sinner does not have the ability in and of himself to come to Jesus unless the Father draws them to him by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the gospel. And this is what happened. Um, we find it also in verse 47, if you look back at the text, we read that the Lord added to their number gave those who were being saved. It's the Lord who's adding to his church. And that's also what we confess, is it not, in the Heidelberg Catechism, that God has always saved sinners by his powerful electing and redeeming grace. Salvation belongs to the Lord from the very beginning of the work of salvation all the way to its end. That is exactly what we mean by that old term, Catholicity, or Catholic. And by that, by saying that we believe in a holy Catholic Church, we are not referring to the Roman Catholic cult, we can call it, or sect. No, rather the term Catholic literally and simply means universal, or of the whole. It means that we believe that we, as a church in this place, Ontario, we are part of a larger, whole church. And so the church is broader than just one local church. And it's broader than just one denomination, right? It is all over the world where people are gathered in Jesus' name uh, to proclaim his gospel and receive his grace from the sacraments. Now, in fact, the early church here in Acts was the continuation of God's holy assembly of sinners saved by grace. It's not the beginning of the church, so to speak. Uh, this was not the beginning of the church, but rather it's continuation. And this kind of comes out a bit more when we get into the language of it. Uh, it's interesting in my studies that the English word church that we use all the time, we find even in our Bibles, it comes from the Dutch or the German Kirche. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, Kirch, Kirch, which is derived ultimately from Greek, kuriakon, which means belonging to the Lord. So the, the house that belongs to the Lord, so to speak. But the Greek term 
that we find throughout the New Testament in reference to the church behind the translation in English church is ecclesia, ecclesia. And ecclesia means a gathering or assembly of those who've been called out. It's rooted in the verb to call out. So uh, we are the gathering of those who've been called out by the Lord. And this was the same term, ecclesia, it was used in the Old Testament translation of the Hebrew Old Testament uh, for anywhere where we find the assembly of Israel. So the assembly of God's people in the Old Testament is referred to as the ecclesia. And so it's very likely and probable that the New Testament writers, like Luke himself here, chose this term ecclesia to show the continuity that exists between God's people of old in the Old Testament, Israel, and now the New Testament church. And so the church that we belong to today is in actuality the continuation and expansion of God's people of old. That whole church, which extends beyond us here locally, but also beyond us uh, and with respect to time. Uh, we belong to the church of the past and also the church of the future, the whole church of Christ. As we confessed in the Catechism, the church is gathered by the Son of God from the beginning to the end of the world. He is that shepherd who knows his sheep. He laid down his life to save them, protect them, and now he is gathering them in throughout the whole world. <clears throat> and into what fold does the good shepherd bring them in, his sheep? Well, into the fold of his true church. And what does a true and living church look like? Well, in this passage, Luke gives us a short but important description of the living church there on the day of Pentecost and the days after. And a lot of my thoughts uh, on this passage are um, inspired, so to speak, by or influenced by John Stott's book here, The Living Church, which I recommend, especially the early chapter on this passage, very insightful. But first of all, uh, the followers of Jesus, they were they physically stayed with the church. Notice that. They physically stayed with the church. This is really interesting. The 3,000 people that were there and added to the membership directory of what we call the first Christian church in uh, Jerusalem, why were they there to begin with? They were there as short-term visiting pilgrims that had traveled from their own hometowns to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover, and then later for the festival of the Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. And so they didn't live there prior to their conversion to this messianic movement. But once they were truly called by the Lord, they stayed with the Lord and his people. And so we find that once you are truly called to the Lord, to Jesus by faith, you are also gathered with his people in worship, all who are truly born again long to have the desire within them to praise God where? Among the assembly of the redeemed, the ecclesia. So in this model of a living church, we find Christians that sacrifice their own interests in order to stay with the church. And so too, we must stay always with the church. I don't mean necessarily staying with one particular local church, but we must stay with the true 
universal church of Christ, wherever it manifests itself, there where sinners are found gathering, praying in Jesus' name, to hear the gospel taught faithfully, to encounter Jesus through the sacraments, and submitting to one another in brotherly love. Whoever God may send you in your life, in his providence, maybe to another state, whatever it is, you must find the true Church of Christ where it is meeting, and you must stay with her to the end. Not only that, we find that in this first Christian Church of Jerusalem, the members devoted themselves to learning, to learning more about God from the teachers that were appointed by Christ for them. They were a learning church. We find that in verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And a little later, it says they were meeting daily in the temple courts, probably for prayer, and in each other's homes to pray and learn more and more. Well, what does this mean? It means a, a few things. First of all, they were teachable. And they were also submissive students. I imagine, yes, they probably raised their questions, had their doubts that they brought before the apostles, but ultimately it seems that they were eager to listen to the reasonableness of what the apostles were teaching to them. And they wanted to hear the insight that they had into all the Old Testament scriptures. And so clearly being filled with the Holy Spirit did not result in an anti-intellectualism. By no means, right? To the contrary, he whom Jesus calls the spirit of truth, well, made them all the more eager to learn truth, to study truth from their teachers. Think of this just literally a couple months prior, in those 40 days after Jesus rose again from the dead and was with his disciples, uh, that he gave them a new hermeneutical approach to the Old, Old Testament scriptures. He gave them a new tool to understand and kind of unlock the Old, Old Testament scriptures for them. And we find that in, in chapter 24 of Luke's account of the gospel, where he tells us about Jesus showing up to the two disciples who are on their way on that road to Emmaus. And there Jesus disclosed to them, opening up the scriptures to show them how everything in the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus. And he showed them how to read scripture in that way. In a sense, he gave them new spectacles or new glasses in order to read the Torah in light of Christ and what he had accomplished. And so they had that new way of seeing the Old Testament. I'm sure that they were excited to put that to use, to discover more and more, to read the Old Testament with those glasses that Jesus gave them, to see how everything was pointing forward to Christ. And, and so they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we too, loved ones, should always be a learning church, eager to study the scriptures together, to know God's word more and more, and to know God by way of learning his scriptures more and more. Next, not only that, we also find that they had all things in common. They were together and had all things in common. The Greek word that we uh, find behind the term fellowship here is koinonia. Koinonia, which basically simply means the sharing in common of things. And as we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism, by faith they had become equal, equal shareholders in the best thing. 
Christ and all his treasures. We are all equal shareholders in the best, Christ, and all that he offers us by grace alone. And because of that, because they, they realized what they had received from Christ, they naturally wanted to share all of the things that they had with one another in love. This was not a forced or coerced communism that was happening. No, this was a voluntary sharing, a radical generosity born out of a deep love for God and love for one another. Did they sell everything that they owned and add all of their possessions? No, they did not. Notice in the text that they were still meeting where? In each other's homes. So they still owned their homes, right? So clearly they, they kept ownership of things. Rather, it's probably the case that they cut off a lot of the so-called luxurious assets that they had, and they sold those extra things. Why? In order to make sure that their brothers and sisters in Christ had their basic needs met. This beautiful fellowship, sharing all things in common, looking after one another, making sure that all are taken care of. All members were, as we confess in the Catechism, actively using what God had given them, whether physically or spiritually, to do what? To enrich the community, to build up the community of faith. And so we believe that each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts that Christ gives us readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. We find that as well in this living church. And lastly, one other point I want us to bring, uh, bring to your attention. They were a church that worshipped God with reverence and joy. Joy. We see their awe and reverence in verse 43. We see their glad and sincere hearts in verse 46 to 47. The Greek word for glad is a lot more, it's a lot more powerful than glad. In English, glad kind of falls a bit flat, at least for me. But the Greek word here is exuberant joy, intense joy and gladness. So clearly, reverence and awe, on one hand, are not incompatible with expressive joy, expressive exuberant joy. And a truly balanced living church praises God with expressive joy and also reverential awe for God. And we also see what effect this had on the people around them. Look at the last verses. God used their gospel-centered, radical fellowship of love to draw other people into the ecclesia, the gathering of the redeemed in that place. God kept adding to their numbers more and more. And there might be a hint of the fact that they were also an evangelistic community, going out, reaching their neighbors, and longing to pull others into the fellowship they had in Christ. And so, loved ones, let us by faith receive that gospel promise of the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus' name as Peter proclaimed and as those early disciples received that day. And also let us respond in faithful fellowship, sharing all things in common because we share in the best thing in common, Christ and all his treasures, both now and forevermore. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this, this time uh, to study your word together, to look into it and, and find the message that you would have for us. And Lord, we do ask and pray that as we've heard your word, 
that now by your spirit you would impress that reality upon our hearts and change us by it. Uh, that you would make us into more and more into a living church to worship you with reverence and with joy, to share all things in common, to be devoted to teaching and be a learning church, to be an evangelistic church as well. Uh, Lord, we, we ask you to work these realities and characteristics into our own church here in this place too, and for your glory and add to our number, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.